I want to be talking about um, my own heart, soul, mind, strength plan for each month. I did. I shared mine in July, and we're already here in August. And um, this comes out of my conviction that to be a disciple of Jesus means to be on the path of, of challenging yourself to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus called that the greatest commandment. And I've really taken that and for me to make it kind of simple and easy to remember, I've just kind of broken that is that God wants us to love him by loving him with all of our heart, godly relationships, soul, deepening our, our times of worship and prayer, mind, deepening our understanding of his word and Christian worldview, and strength, practically giving and serving uh, those around us. And so kind of if you're new or if you're visiting with us today, kind of what I've pledged to do on the first Sunday of each month is just kind of share how I'm growing and how I'm challenging myself to grow in those areas. I find that if I challenge myself with one goal in each area over the course of a month, that's really, really helpful. Anything more than a month, then I tend to kind of get, feel like it gets a little stale. Anything less than a month, then it's too much turnover. I feel like a month is a good window. So I'm going to share with you my four goals for July. Here they are. Maybe. Yes. Are we good, Greg? How come it never works once we're live? We practiced this beforehand. If you're new, this has been like an ongoing thing. We haven't been able to get this little thing to work, but we're still working on it. There's this weird thing that happens. I don't know. Do you mind just advancing the slides, Greg? Or I'm going to try one more thing. There we go. Whoa. Fantastic. Does it, does it really work? It does. Oh, great. Okay. So here's what I'm planning to do for August. Uh, in the area of heart, I'm going to try and connect with uh, two or three people who are in town during the Shambhala Festival. I think it starts this weekend, but I'm really interested to connect with them uh, just randomly. I'm just going to, uh, it's kind of tied into number two, which is a prayer walk every day. But I want to try and connect with people who are coming to this uh, festival and I have at least two or three coffees or lunches with people and just kind of say, hey, what's brought you here? What's drawing you here? Um, I really have an interest in understanding what makes this festival such a draw to people and begin praying about what role can the churches play in engaging people coming to this festival every year. So I'm going to start small. I'm going to start with some lunches and coffees. I can't have them with everybody. I think there's thousands and thousands of people who come, but I'm going to start small. In the area of soul, I'm going to challenge myself to just go on a prayer walk every day. Um, and as I pray, pray for the church, pray for you guys as you come to mind, pray for different things in my life. But to get out there walking and praying, I find it very hard. I do so much sitting just because of the nature of my job. Um, I find it hard to sit and pray. My mind goes kind of haywire. So I want to experiment in August with kind of going for like 30 or 45 minute prayer walks. In the area of mind, uh, I'm going to um, dig into what I hope to be some of the best um, arguments on either side of the same-sex marriage debate. I know this is a hugely contentious and, and kind of front-burner issue uh, more and more, especially with the ruling out of the states. Um, it's a very important issue because it really forces everybody to get really clear on what are the kind of the philosophical and theological um, foundations of how we think about things. And so on one level, it's, it's really not so much on one level a, a exploring same-sex marriage. That, that's kind of the, the lightning rod. The larger issue is how do you just think Christianly and, uh, Christianly and biblically with a tremendous amount of clarity on any issue? This is just a really lightning rod issue that makes it feel like we really got to get clarity on that. So I'm going to be uh, researching kind of the best 
sources on both sides of that debate. I certainly know where my conviction stands, but I want to uh, um, just get a real clarity and not just knowing how to think about it as a, as a Christian and certainly for me as a pastor, but how to address it in a way that is still gracious and loving and caring. Um, and lastly, I'm going to just do a daily secret serve. Uh, I'm just going to challenge myself for the month of August to, in some small way every day, bless someone in a way that they will probably not know it's me. So that, that's kind of, so that's what I'm tracking with for August. If you, I know there's a few people last month who kind of connected with me and, and put a plan together. If you're looking for ideas of how you can challenge yourself in those areas, please feel free to contact me or email me and I will help you brainstorm. But um, I like doing it every month because that means that, you know, 12 times a year, I'm forced to kind of come back to this major priority and say, how am I going to challenge myself to do what Jesus says is the most important thing? Okay, so before we get into a Psalm 8, that's what we're going to be tracking today. So if you want to have your Bibles or an electronic device, you can go there. Uh, let me just um, continue with a word of prayer. God, as we open up your word this morning, as we prepare for the meal that you gave us and to fellowship together in, the, in this potluck after, um, I pray that you would use the scripture to arrest our hearts, to change us, to show us new things about yourself, show us new things about us, about those around us. Do you would just cause this message to not be one in a line of a number of Sunday sermons, that this, you would do something um, subversive and powerful and transformative and unexpected in and through this psalm, God. We thank you for your word. We thank you that when our hearts are open to receiving your word, um, something amazing can happen, God. And so we want to open ourselves up to you as best we know how and be available to you. We love you, God. Um, open the eyes of our hearts to see you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to read through Psalm 8. Here we go. Oh, I got verse 4. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Um, when she was 12 years old, Kathy Keller, who, who's the wife of uh, the New York pastor, Tim Keller, she wrote a letter to C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis is the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. And she received four letters back. Uh, Timothy Keller shares this story in one of his sermons. And he notes that even though C.S. Lewis understood that he was writing to a 12-year-old girl, he wrote the letters back to her with a tremendous amount of respect, almost like he was writing a peer. The last letter that Kathy received was 11 days before C.S. Lewis died. And he was too frail to walk, so at that point in his life, he had been bound to a wheelchair, and he was too frail to actually handwrite the letters at, like he'd done in the previous three, so he had used a typewriter um, to, con uh, to compose the fourth. And in this state of frailty and weakness and moving rapidly towards the death, C.S. Lewis had written one more letter 
to this little girl in America. And the first thing um, Kathy says that she remembers when she got the first letter was thinking, C.S. Lewis wrote me. <laughs> like C.S. Lewis actually wrote me. Someone that she admired and respected, someone who was very famous, very important, took notice of her and thought of her and then followed up by writing to her and addressing her as, not as a little kid, but as a sister in the kingdom. And the thought that C.S. Lewis knew her and took her seriously, even for a few moments, it totally thrilled her and it moved her. I don't know if you guys have ever had a celebrity encounter or ever crossed paths with someone like really, really famous. Um, but if you have, you've gotten a taste of what that experience is like. When someone that you admire or that you look up to or that in your eyes or the world's eyes is important or famous, when they take notice of you, even if it's for a moment, it is thrilling, it is moving, it is it feels like your whole life has been changed. And, and even if the exchange is very, very quick, just for a moment. Um, I've had probably what count as two celebrity encounters in my life. First was when I was a child. Second was when I was in my 20s. Uh, my first brush with the truly famous was when I was, a, I think I was eight years old, maybe nine years old. Um, Hannibal, Face, Murdoch and B.A. Baracus were four of the most important people in my life. Uh, every week I would watch the A-Team. First of all, if you don't know who these people are, shame on you. These are heroes. That's, that's your pastoral takeaway this week. Go back, go on the Netflix or find somewhere where you can get, look at old episodes. Not the new, new A-Team, this is the original. So every week I would watch the A-Team religiously, and for a season of my life, it beat out MacGyver. It even beat out Knight Rider, so you knew it was good because those were in heavy competition for top spot. One day, I decided to, I, I, I found out that you could, you could write the A-Team because it had like a fan mail thing. And so I, I took out a, a piece of paper, stuck it in my mom's typewriter at the time, pounded out a letter to the A-Team saying how much I love the show and how much I watch it, how I've got all their action figures and most of the vehicles and who knows what else I wrote. It would be hilarious to actually get a hold of that letter. And I sent it off to the mailing address and thought no more of it. Until a few months later, when in the mail, I received an 8.5 by 11 flat vanilla envelope addressed to me. I didn't get very much mail addressed to me when I was that age. And I opened it, and inside was a picture similar to this, but it had all their autographs on it. And it had a little letter that um, was kind of a form letter, but it was essentially thanking me for watching the show and for, for supporting the, um, the A-team. <laughs> um, I, I remember being stunned. I, I held that letter, or that picture, and that letter in my hands for a long time. I just kind of stared at it. And it had all these thoughts rushing through my head, right? Like all of a sudden my adrenaline goes through the roof. I'm like, I got to show people at school. This is the ultimate one-up, like what happened on your weekend, right? Like, oh, well, I did some stuff. Oh, yeah, the A-team wrote me. There it is. Um, I was just, it was just so, I, mean, I, I remember, your body kind of goes into shock when someone that important takes notice of you. 
Now, I realize now that it wasn't the real A-team who signed it and sent it. It was their PR department. It, it wasn't like real autographs. It was just like a printed photo with printed autographs on it. Um, but I didn't know that then. And as an eight or nine-year-old little boy, I was just over the moon that the A-team, that, that in, my, in my worldview, for a moment, just a moment, you know, these four guys thought of me and then took the time to sign something and then send it to me. My second encounter with fame occurred in my 20s. Um, I was made to go to a conference in the Bahamas. And by made, I mean chose to go. And by chose, I mean begged to go. And uh, my wife and I went. It was an amazing conference, a lot of just interesting, wonderful speakers. And one of the things that made the conference really special was before it kicked off officially on the Friday evening, there was a Friday afternoon meet and greet on one of the beaches, on a private beach. And so my wife and I, oh, what made that, sorry, what made that extra special is it wasn't just people attending the conference, it was the conference speakers who were also invited to this. So anybody involved in the conference um, was able to come and just hang out. And I will never forget the moment that my wife and I were walking across the beach and you're kind of like looking but you're, like, you're looking to see the, the conference people because you want to catch the eye of the important people. You know there's lots of other people and pastors there from all over. Don't worry about them. I wanna, you want to you catch the eye of the conference people, the speakers. And I'm, you're kind of looking around. You're like, is that them? It's hard to tell, right? People are in bathing suits. They've got snorkels on. It's weird and awkward. So you're like, I don't know. Do you, do you go up and say anything? Well, Heather and I go up into this one pavilion where they're serving drinks and appetizers. And at first we weren't quite sure, but Heather was kind of like, I think that's this person, and I'm like, oh, I, I think that's totally that person. And I was so nervous because this person was like, at the time, and still remains, one of my theological uh, role models and heroes. And that person was N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright and his wife Maggie were just chilling in their bathing suits, sipping on some wine and appetizers in the Bahamas, and I'm standing like 25 feet away from them. And then I actually had the guts to go towards them and talk with them, and they just gave Heather and I their time. They talked with us. They asked us where we were from. They made some jokes about stuff. And in the moment, it's like an out-of-body experience. It's like, here I am with N.T. Wright in my bathing suit. We're talking about life. I'm in the Bahamas. It's like the most surreal collision of all these factors. Now, for some of you, you might not know who N.T. Wright is. And if that's the case, shame on you again. Times two. Double shame. Because N.T. Wright is fascinating and extraordinary. I know some of you are like, you know, Jeff, that's great that you met N.T. Wright. I'd rather have an autographed picture of the A-team. But if you knew who N.T. Wright was, you might not say that. N.T. Wright is one of the world's most uh, vigorous and interesting theologians. Um, He's a prolific writer, he, a former pastor, now full academic, and he's helped millions of people around the world move into an intellectually rigorous, passionate faith while at the same time being a thought leader at the highest level of academics and really pushing against other um, biblical scholars who uh, are essentially arguing against the validity of scripture, the validity of the resurrection, things like that. N.T. Wright is kind of like and has served 
without much exaggeration, as a one-man A-team in the theological intelligentsia and has been a one-man wrecking crew to take on these argumentations and say that's actually not the case at all. There's good substantial evidence for why we can, from a very intellectual point of view, absolutely conclude the scripture is both coherent and the word of God and that the resurrection of Jesus is not just mythic or legendary or symbolic. It is factual and that has all kinds of ramifications for how we live our life. If you've ever met someone famous, even, even a brush with fame, you understand how that encounter changes you. You get excited. You feel like you're coming alive. You stand a little bit taller. You are um, more engaged. All your senses are kind of more engaged. And, and the interesting thing, if you think about it, if you remember those times for yourself, your sense of self-worth skyrocketed in that moment. Your sense of self-importance and um, self-worth skyrocketed in that moment. Why is that? Well, this is, this is kind of a theory that I'm, I'm working with, is that I think everybody, um, I, I think when someone who is important, who matters, who is famous, um, the, this scripture would use the word who is glorious, when they take notice of you, that meets a need that every single human being has in their soul. And it's a need that Psalm 8 points to. Um, Psalm 8 gives us a clue that all of us possess this need to be known and seen and appreciated by someone who is glorious, who's truly important, who truly, truly matters. We all need someone who has weight. Biblical word kavod, it means glory, but it, it's translated glory, but the, in Hebrew it's, it's a bit more nuanced. It means density. It's like if you're carrying something heavy, you're carrying something really glorious. And we all have this need as human beings, starting when we're very small, to have someone of significance take notice of us. Because when you become known by a glorious person, when a, no a glorious person notices you, there's a kind of healing and a security and a significance that gets transferred to you. You receive it even actually without noticing it. This is why... Um, this is the role of parenting, right? These children are looking to their parents who for them, without being able to articulate it, are the, are the ultimately glorious beings. And when that being looks at you and sees you as a child and affirms you again and again, there is a kind of security and a kind of self-worth that gets embedded and imprinted on a child's life and heart um, that no other mechanism can provide. It's difficult to kind of put this exchange in the words, but you know it. If you've ever experienced someone who really, really matters taking time out of their important life and looking at you and paying attention to you and being mindful of you. Beginning in infancy, human beings never outgrow the need to have someone of significance and weight see them as special or precious. We all need that at every stage of our life. We never grow that desire. Self-worth and personal significance is not something that you can manufacture from within yourself. <clears throat> you only take on weight or glory yourself if someone glorious invests that into you. You can think about this very practically. Um, for a child or for a, a tween or a teenager, is it going to be very helpful 
to sit down with them and say, self-worth and self, uh, personal significance is very important, so I want you to do it. I want you to, to, to have it. You need to have self-worth. You need to understand that you are, are, are worthy and worth and just, just take hold of it and, and step into that conviction. Drum it up from within yourself. It, it's not actually going to work. And we put a lot of pressure, and, and the secular world is very limited in its ability to help raise genuine self-worth because it's trying to find it from the inside, but you can't get self-worth from the inside. You can't drum it up yourself. There's no, there's no real basis for it. It might sound good on paper. You need to understand the worth that you have and the significance that you have. Okay, but if that isn't being imparted to you by someone glorious, it's going to f- be very paper thin. And in the silent moments of your soul, you're actually going to doubt whether you have self-worth or true significance if no one of weight or glory is actually investing in you, paying attention to you, being mindful of you, loving you, investing in your life. Self-worth and significance are things that have to come from the outside in. And it just has to. It's the only way it works. I think we'd all say self-worth and significance are massively important to a full and rich life. So if these are things that we can't just decide to have and, and manufacture them from the inside out, how do you actually take hold of it? Where do, you, where do you go to find those things? And there's three foundations you can have for self-worth and significance. There's three ways you can try and take on worth by borrowing the glory from someone else. The first foundation is a glorious person. Um, A lot of people chase glorious people in order to try and get them so that their glory will rub off on on, on you. Think very, very practical. Let's, Let's go dating. This is what drives so much of romantic relationships. I'm a teenage girl. I feel very inglorious, but there's a glorious boy, and he is significant, and he has weight, and he is beautiful, he's majestic, and if I could be with him, if he could notice me, then all of my insecurities, all of my lack, all of my plainness, his glory would overcome it. And I'd be healed of all that hurt on the inside, all that loneliness, all that doubt um, and fear that maybe I don't matter. So much of dating relationships are trying to borrow glory from someone who we think is glorious. But if you make another person the foundation for your self-worth and your security, then uh, you're, you're really playing a dangerous game. Because you're basing your identity on someone who actually isn't glorious they just appear to be glorious from, from your perspective. And when you get that person, already notice the language, right? You're really using that person. You're not loving them for what they, who they are. You're beginning to love and want them for what they can give you. It's unconscious a lot of the time, but it's still happening. Um, but once you get them, you're going to realize, oh, this person's actually pretty limited. This person... This person's kind of inglorious. They're broken. That hope that they would be my savior, they would save me out of insignificance, they would save me into a new level of self-worth, that's not happening. 
maybe I just need a different person. Maybe they're the problem. And so what can happen is you can begin to move into a cycle where you begin using people as a way to avoid the actual issue. You can begin saying, well, that person wasn't glorious enough. I need to find a more glorious person. That person was a problem. It wasn't me. It was that person. And you begin using people uh, in a cyclical way to try and address cravings of your soul that no person could ever actually fulfill, could, could never fill, could never meet. They can't meet those needs. Second foundation you could try is a glorious thing. Maybe it's not a person, but maybe it's a thing that you're chasing after. A lot of people chase things for the same reason. If I could get that, if I could attain that, all of my insecurities and weaknesses and sense of um, um, lowliness and smallness would be healed and overwhelmed by the glory of that thing. I would become glorious if I could get and take hold of that thing. If I could achieve this, if I could make this much money, if I could attain this kind of lifestyle, if I could have that thing, just that one object, that would allow me to feel so much better about myself. Its glory would compensate and overtake my weakness. But if you go down that road, and many people do in our culture, you're going to find that there isn't enough money, there's not enough stuff, there's not enough achievement that will ever satisfy this craving in your soul. And so what you might do is shift into a similar cycle, but instead of using people, you're just using things. You're just a consumer. I consume this and that and this lifestyle and this thing, or you go on the cycle of well-intended noble achievement. If I just achieve more and more and greater and greater and better and better, but you're actually just become trapped because you're in the cycle where you're desperately trying to ground and find healing for your soul in things that actually can't provide it. And it's tricky because they do kind of provide it for a moment. That moment when you first fall in love, when you first get that thing, it does feel like everything's right in the world, but it won't sustain itself. And in a life without God, in a, in a secular way of thinking, these are the only two foundations you really have to choose from in terms of grounding what your self-worth is. I am worthy because I am associated with these kinds of people or I am worthy and glorious because I have these kind of glorious things. Both of those are bad foundations, but they're the only foundations that are really open to people who don't have access to God and who don't have access to Psalm 8. If you have access to Psalm 8, if you have access to God, there's a third foundation. It's really the only real foundation. It's a foundation that doesn't have any cracks in it, but that is the foundation of a glorious God. The need to be seen by someone who is glorious is real, and it is a desperate human need. But if you don't ground that pursuit in the glorious God who created you, then you're going to find that your self-worth and your sense of significance is very fragile because it's always connected to um, how things are working out with these people or whether or not you can keep and hold or get more things. So your, your sense of, of self is always very, very, very fragile. But Psalm 8 says, God, you have set your glory in the heavens. God has established it. The word set there means like embedded it. It's there. It cannot be moved. So when we begin to allow this God to glory in us and to begin to associate with this God, this is a foundation that is not, that can never be threatened. This is a foundation that can never be taken away from you. 
Every other foundation could. You could lose your job. You could lose the person. You could lose the stuff. All of those things are vulnerable to death and destruction. Only a glorious God is not vulnerable to those things. So it doesn't even really make sense to place our ultimate hope and our sense of self-worth and significance in things that are vulnerable to death and destruction. Why wouldn't you set it in something that is firm in the heavens that cannot be moved? I want to look at verse 3 and 5 again. Follow along if you have a Bible open. This is David writing. Verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You've made them a little lower than angels and crowned them with glory and honor. David says, This big, important, famous God, more famous than anyone, more important than anybody, weightier, has more glory than any person or thing in all of creation. This God is mindful of me. And this God loves me. I'm on God's radar. Which David, looking up in a night sky and contemplating the vastness of space, says, that's about as absurd a thought as you could ever get. I mean, certainly certain Greek... um, religions, worldviews, certainly believed in deities of some form, multiple deities, but the gods were seen as so big and lofty and detached from regular everyday life. No, no deity really thought or were mindful or cared about human beings. They had bigger fish to fry. And David says, not, not this God. This God is responsible for all of this. And yet he's mindful of me. And that question just comes out of David's heart. What, how is this even possible that this God, a God of this kind of glory, would even, would even give a moment's thought to someone as inglorious as me? It just it, it shocked David's heart. It was that same feeling that, you know, that I had getting that letter from the A-team, maybe that you've had in your brush of celebrity. It doesn't seem like it's even real. Here's what I'd like you to do this week. Um, I think it'd be good for all of us at some point to get into nature, day or night, and take Psalm 8 with you and just read it a few times and just sit with that question in nature. That's what David did. He just went out in the nature and tried to open himself up to the vastness and the grandeur of creation and just said, God, who made all of this, are you honestly mindful of me? Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're a skeptic or a seeker. Or you, um, I, I still extend that invitation to you. Take Psalm 8 and, and, and get out there and just say, God, if you're real, maybe I've thought that there must be some kind of intelligence, power, force behind all that is. But if you actually care about me, if, you actually, if, I'm, if I'm on your mind, would you, would you somehow show me God? We should all do that this week. And when you begin doing that, when you begin letting Psalm 8 rumble around in your head and into your heart, it frees you from having to use people to get glory or to feel better about yourself or to, to chase after stuff. It's not that you have to, it's not, it's not so much willpower, like, oh, I don't want to do that anymore. It's like, I don't need to do that anymore. Why would I, if I end up dating or not dating, I'd be happy with either. Be a blessing from God. But I'm not dependent on it for my self-worth. 
If these things happen to me, if I get this job, if I don't, if this happens, if I get this promotion, if this happens, that's fine. But if I don't, that's okay. I'm not, it's not going to crush me because the creator of all that is loves me. He cares for me. He sees me. And as I let that continue to just overwhelm me, that is providing the healing that I've been looking for my whole life. That is providing a security that I can't find what I've been looking for in these other things. And, and, and the people, uh, as, as good and glorious as they are, and the things as good and glorious as they are, they just stop having a hold of you. And you just can live in a much freer place. You can live in a much more simple way, in a much more worshipful way, um, and with a greater security. Because the one who is glorying, glorying in you has set his glory in the heavens. There's nothing that can threaten it. David has this line where he says, why would you even care about human beings? You've made them, but look, you've made them a little lower than angels. You've crowned them with glory and honor. Now David was astonished of God's love for him, but he's thinking through the lens of the Genesis account in creation where God creates everything and then gives humanity dominion over all the creatures. He makes man in his image. Man is the only image of God-bearing creature in all of creation. And David is thinking about how much God loves and cares for humanity through that lens. He's saying, wow, that's amazing that in the, in, the, in the kind of spectrum of created beings, we're a little bit lower than heavenly beings, but we're above these other creatures. Why would you even give that kind of gift to man? For David, the fact that human beings were crowned with glory and honor was referring to the fact that they alone were made in God's image and they carried unique responsibilities within creation. There was a nobility to humanity because they were made in God's image that no other creature in the world had access to. But this side of the cross and this side of the resurrection, I hope we all realize we have a very different window into understanding the line that God has crowned us with glory and honor. Yes, it is still established in the Genesis account, but there is something bigger and deeper happening. There's a different kind of weight that is now embedded into that line because of the cross. In the story I told you about Kathy Keller getting the notes from C.S. Lewis, I told you that her first thought was like, C.S. Lewis like, wrote me, blew her mind. What I didn't tell you was the second thought that had occurred to her. And this was it. She said, if a man, C.S. Lewis, who I respected and admired, wanted to, wanted to know me a little at the expense of his time, what could it possibly mean that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, whose voice called all of the stars into existence, wanted to know me completely, not at the expense of his time, at the expense of his life. If the fact that someone as glorious as C.S. Lewis thinking of me and writing to me thrilled me and moved me, how much more should it move me and thrill me and empower me and lift me up to know that Jesus Christ thinks of me, that he knows me, that he loves me, See, we have a different window into the depths of God's love that even David had. Because we understand more than David did about a greater crown and a greater honor that was bestowed on us. Jesus proved that God loves you and cares for you at the cross. Let me read an account from Matthew's gospel, Matthew 27. This is when Jesus was 
um, being tortured and about to be taken away. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then they twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and they knelt in front of him and they mocked him. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and they took the staff and they struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him and then they led him away to crucify him. You see, the heart of the gospel is that Jesus took on a crown of thorns and took on humiliation and shame so that we could be given a crown of glory and honor? David didn't understand that. He had a foretaste, but he didn't get it. We, we can get it. We have access to that truth. And the crown we will be given is a crown that King David himself would have been envious of. In 1 Peter 5.4, it says, When the chief shepherd appears, referring to Jesus' second coming, you will receive a crown of glory that will never fade away. His glory is set in the heavens. And the glory, if you are a Christian, that he is building and bringing into your life is set there as well. So we come back to David's question through a new lens. What kind of a king would crown himself with shame and humiliation so that a lowly subject could be crowned with glory and honor? And the Bible's answer is only a true king. And there's only ever been one. And so our response with our lives is, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. God, as we sing this song before this time of communion, may we sing from a new space. May we sing with a deeper awareness of how in Christ you have crowned us with glory and honor. We are so undeserving, God. We are so lowly. We are so inglorious. But you love us and you have sought us out. You have, at great cost to yourself, invited us to experience redemption and fullness, to allow your glory to heal those places in us that struggle with a sense of self-worth and self-significance, God. God, put to death on us the lie that we are not worthy and that we are insignificant because of what you has done, have done for us. We love you, our King. Help us to serve you with our whole lives out of recognition for your greatness and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.